Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Sorority, and they are generally one of our sponsors, and uh, here in the last night, we have a couple of them here now. And uh, I would like to invite all of you, if you are not already members, to join UNAUSA. It's the only organization that really speaks to the need for U.S. participation in the United Nations. And at this time in our political life, that is so important. I, I can't tell you how important it is. One other thing I'd like to mention is that if you go online to unausa.org slash action, you can immediately send something to your uh, congressperson saying we want full funding by the U.S. for the United Nations. We want the U.S. to participate fully. And I know that Bonnie knows more about that. I know that uh, Gina knows more about that, our ambassadors in this room. But we really want you to participate also. Uh, if you'd like to talk to me afterward, great. Available. And meanwhile, I would like to welcome this wonderful new group uh, women of Color Advancing uh, Peace and Security. And I learned about them uh, through Asha Castleberry, who's down at the end, uh, <laughs> Asha, uh, David and I have known, uh, my husband and I have known for about 10 years. She started, oh, more than that. Like <laughs> 12. She started as uh, an intern with us in the Westchester uh, County chapter when she was still a student at Hampton University and in Rotsi. Yes. <laughs> and went on to her career with, um, with the military and so on and so on. She can tell you what she's doing now. Uh, also, Minnie Murthy, who is here, way many, <laughs> is uh, a board member, a longtime board member of the division and uh, a real champion for women's rights. <coughs> She's written a, a very important book on the subject and uh, has worked in various places around the world. And uh, so I will just mention them. Then I want to invite Bonnie Jenkins, who is the ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, who is the president and one of the founders of Women of, uh, of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. Uh, to moderate for the evening and to introduce the rest of the panelists. We also want at some point to go around the room and find out who's here, because it gives us, it, it illuminates who we're talking. Maybe we'll do a quick, a quick round now. Uh, shall we start with Mona? Oh, hi. No pressure. It's myself, but you should really turn on your uh, oh, the red button and you'll be heard much better. I think that. <laughs> Hi, um, Mona Martoken, um, membership chairperson for the Partnership of the Eradication of Human Trafficking for UNA, Southern New York Division. Oh, hi, uh, Wayne here. I'm a new board member for the UNASMY. 
Hi, Cassia. Um, I'm just with New York chapter, no special position. <laughs> Hi, I'm Corinne McSpadden. I'm a senior editor of the American Journal of Nursing and a graduate student in women's history. Hi, my name is Zaina Ballin. I'm a current intern at Google Action with Bob, <laughs> Bob Zuber over here, and that's about it. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Rupshi Berman from um, Orange County, California, mm. and uh, thank you to UNA. I was I had the opportunity to be a delegate this year, and um, yeah, so I run a nonprofit myself, and I'm also a Council of Organization of United uh, Nations Association Orange County chapter. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Valerie Edwards. I'm a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, which also partners with uh, UNA. And I'm a reporter for the Daily Mail, and I'm looking forward to hearing everything that you lovely people have to say and how we can, and myself can get more involved. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Jessica Broadnett. I am a member of UNA, UN, as well as a founder of Educational Voices of Change. Uh, where we promote literacy and uh, heart-to-reach communities as a way of empowerment of poverty. And I look forward to the discussion tonight, and as I'm a professor as well of English. Hi, everyone. My name is Akuto Agilano. I work at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and also the VA, so I work in gastroenterology with veterans. I'm also a dual-degree student getting my master's in public health Ambassadors of Biomental Studies. I'd like to also thank um, Ambassador um, Jenkins for coming to our class two weeks ago. We we're doing a One Health project, and so her presence really drew me to come and attend this event today. So I appreciate you all, and I'm very excited. Back here, and then we'll go down that way. Please. <laughs> 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 I'm just a guest here, but um, my name is. <laughs> I previously worked in conflict uh, resolution and peace building in North Africa. And I'm a member of the uh, organization that is here today, and I'm also a fellow with the New York Women's Conference. I'm not sure we heard you. Could you please come up to the. <laughs> Hi, so I previously worked in conflict resolution and peace building in the Horn of Africa, and I'm a newly founded member of your organization, and I'm also a writing fellow with the New York Women's Foundation here in New York. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Emma. Uh, I'm from France, and I study at EF School in Terrytown, and I'm in internship now with Mr. and Mrs. Stegman. Yes. Hello, my name is Habiba Tujawa. I am the um, editorial director for UN, UNA in New York, Southern Division Young Professional. I work at the Mayor's Office of Contract Services. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you all and welcome. And Bonnie, I'll turn it over to you. Okay. I guess this side is all the speakers. Um, okay. Thank. I want to thank first of all Jean and um, UNA USA for uh, partnering with us on this and allowing us to be in this really oh, great space. Oh, it's not on. Um, and for allowing us to be in this very nice space. And I really want to say how great it is to see everyone here um, who's attending this event. Um, the Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, um, and Conflict Transformation is a brand new organization we just launched in December. I am the president and founder of the organization, and it's already, I think, has been doing uh, a bit, quite a bit in terms of outreach and slowly building up its membership. So I really hope that all of you will become members um, of the organization and be part of the work that we're doing in the future. Um, the vision of the organization, just for your information, is to advance the leadership and professional development of women of color in the fields of international peace, security, and conflict transformation. And what the organization is doing is creating a platform that is devoted to women of color that cultivates a strong voice and network for its members while encouraging dialogue and strategies for engaging in policy discussions on an international scale. The organization is committed to achieving its vision of advancing the leadership and professional development of women of color in the fields of international peace, security, and conflict transformation. Um, our website is wcaps.org. Uh, I would like all of you to visit um, and also to join as a member. If you, if you scroll down to the bottom of the website, uh, you will see a membership form. It would be great if all of you can join because um, we send out emails and everything to people um, who are part of the membership. So I really hope that you can join. We really want to build this up to be something that's really important. Um, and so we need to have great people like all of you uh, to be a part of it. And your expertise is going to be very important to make sure that we really do represent the different areas that women of color are working in, in peace and security. So why are we here today? Um, uh, in reading the National Security Strategy, the U.S. National Security Strategy that came out, I guess maybe a month and a half ago, two months ago now, um, yeah, and um, it, it struck me that, um, and I'm not sure how different this is in the past, so it's not like it's all of a sudden so different, but um, the, the focus of the majority of it was obviously military issues. And um, there was short mention of some other issues like climate change and uh, infectious disease. But obviously the, the majority of the national security strategy is on military threats. Um, and what I was thinking when I read it is that um, Today's challenges that we have, the global security challenges that we have in so many areas, whether it's climate change, infectious disease, food and water security, biodiversity issues, um, you know, uh, women and girls' health, these are all issues that are increasingly becoming important. They always were important, but are becoming even more important and really do affect people around the world. And it's not just global security and international security, it's national security. Um, and uh, when we don't represent that in our documents, what happens is there's less attention given to these issues and less funding that's put toward the uh, way in which we should really be dealing with these issues. So um, when I was thinking, I said we really do need to think about how we're defining national security now. And, uh, and is it sufficient for the challenges 
that are just not going away. None of these challenges are going away. These, particularly the environmental issues, are only going to become increasingly important. And we need a generation, next generation of people who are ready to deal with these issues. And if we're still focusing on the military, we're not really um, telling our people in the U.S. that these other issues are, in, are very important and they do impact the U.S. Uh, and people here in the U.S. and it is, they are security issues as well. Um, administrations have often defined national security in ways in which that's beneficial to them. So, um, you know, in the recent discussions about the steel, the steel um, tariffs, some people were talking about it in terms of a national security issue. Um, and so, you know, it becomes national security depending on how you want the, the attention to go and how you want the, the flavor to be in, in a debate. Um, so that also raises the issue, well, if it's that flexible, as, as it has been through both administrations have, have done this, then, how, you know, how do we really define it today? Uh, and not only recognizing that we need to um, bring in these other issues, but we need to recognize that a lot of these issues are, are connected, you know, and it, climate change is, is connected to infectious disease, it's connected to food and water security. Um, and so all, a lot of these issues are connected, and we have to realize we have to deal with all of these things. We can't, you know, bifurcate uh, issues. Um, so I thought it would be nice to bring together uh, around the table um, some experts and others who have things that they would like to say based on their expertise. And a lot of these issues, um, not just military, but some of the other issues that I've been talking about, and start a dialogue. And one thing that uh, you'll see when you go to the WCAP's website is we started a page called Rede uh, Redefining National Security. So we're going to be carrying this theme for a while. We're going to be doing a webinar next month with one of our board members um, who's going to be talking about a little more in the area of infectious disease, talking about why that's a national security issue. And we're going to be doing this on a regular basis. So uh, we're starting a hashtag, Redefining, redefining NatSec, N-A-T-S-E-C. Um, and so if you want to tweet about the event, um, be sure to hashtag nat, uh, redefining NatSec um, so we can start the dialogue. And, you know, so we're going to be doing a lot more of that just because we think we need to talk about this issue um, more. And finally, you know, as women of color, um, you know, a lot of these issues affect women of color around the world more than, uh, than any other group. Um, and so it's really important for us to make sure that the, you know, the issues are being debated, that someone is at the table saying, these are important issues. We're not, you know, we need, the, you know, we understand the military, you know, we have to have our, you know, security in that respect, but we have to make sure we look at other issues as well. So with that in mind, uh, we have th this great panel. Um, which you see on this side, and you see uh, our names up there. Uh, I want to thank everyone who has taken the time to uh, come to New York, who's not uh, from New York, to be here for this event and to share their experiences. One thing I would like to say is we have a Young Ambassadors program as part of our WCAPS, and so I want to uh, thank JC for uh, coming and being uh, representing our young voice uh, and our future, our future uh, uh, for. Um, dealing with these issues. So um, I think we'll just, may, may we introduce these last, these other three, sure. and then go on. Okay. Hi, sorry to come in late. I'm Megan Eimer, and I am the 
Phillips, Director of Development for Strategic Capacity Group, doing security sector reform. But used to work at State, which right. worked with both of you guys years ago. <laughs> so it's great to, good to see you. Thank uh, My name is Nana Mesangwampim. I'm a queen mother from Africa, and I have a foundation, NASPA, for women empowerment. Hello everyone, my name is Kwame Praku, and I'm the son of Nana Praku, <laughs> and I'm here as a representative to help her with her NASBA Foundation. Great, thanks for coming. Um, so I'm going to now turn it over to uh, Gina Abercrombie with Stanley, who's going to uh, give us some keynote remarks, and want to thank you very much for being part of this, and for your distinguished career as, a, as an investor. Thank you. All right, everyone can hear me? Great. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a very important discussion. And as I was preparing for it, I took the time to review 30 years of U.S. national uh, security strategies, um, the documents that the U.S. government uses to define national security. And I started from 1988, that would have been under President Ronald Reagan, at the time, I was a young green diplomat serving in Indonesia. I had uh, my work focused on the political participation of minority populations and how to increase respect for human rights. Neither were in the national security strategy that year. By today's standard, President Reagan had two unusual goals that were included in the strategy for 1988. One was to restore national prestige, and the other was to increase pride in citizenship. But there were also two other familiar ones included in that year's strategy, and you'll recognize them not only as familiar, but universal. The first is some variation of protecting, strengthening, or reclaiming our military might. The second is some reworking of the concept of restoring, rebuilding, or enhancing our economic might. In fact, those two priorities recurred in some way every single year. And I believe we'd be hard pressed to find a nation that doesn't have them front and center in their discussions of national security, because after all, they cover that basic responsibility of the state, which is to provide for the safety and security of the citizens. But there's also an interesting quote in that 1988 National Security Strategy from former presidential advisor Walter Lippmann, who also started Council for Foreign Relations, but never mind. And he said, successive generations of men tend to face the same recurrent problems and react to them in more or less habitual ways. And that's what brings us here tonight. <laughs> what can women, especially women of color, add to all the writings, analyses, implementations of national security strategies? Can we add perspective and depth and useful nuance to the discussion? Can we add greater insight as to which elements should be included when we define national security? Can we do more than just add to the pages and papers and books that have been written about this worthy topic? Can we set out a convincing model that recasts the definition, one that allows nation states to understand why using those traditional broad strokes, military, economy, economy, military, to define national security still hasn't made our nations secure? Senator Jean Shaheen, 
She sits on the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the Senate Armed Services Committee, and she's the ranking member of the Homeland Security Committee. She recently observed that women have different experiences and perspectives than men, not necessarily better, but the essential other half of a whole that must be brought to bear to reach the best outcomes in national security. This being true, it demands that women of color speak up and share our perspectives and expertise that we have gained through our life experience and through our training. The challenge before us today is to determine how we can move the conversation forward, whether we can identify recommendations that governments, non-governmental organizations, and activists can embrace and support. Our voices need to be heard to improve how we think about national security and improve our selection of the priorities that protect it, because those habitual ways are not working. As an example, the priorities over the years in the U.S. national security strategy have drilled down and expanded that definition of what a strong military and a strong economy include. This evening, we're re-examining the elements of a strategy that must make sense in today's world. What are the features on which we broadly agree? Are they the right mix? Are they the right priority? What's missing? We've got three major documents to use as a frame for this discussion. UN Security Council Resolution 1325, the recently passed U.S. Women, Peace and Security Act, and of course the National Security Strategy of 2017. UN 1325, in brief, speaks to the need for women to hold a greater world in conflict resolution to achieve long-lasting stability. Like the Women, Peace and Security Act of 2017, 1325 acknowledges that peace and security efforts are more effective when women are full and equal partners equal partners who can offer a vital perspective in understanding conflict. And as former ambassador for global women's issues, Milan Rivera said, offer valuable strategies to resolve it. The Women, Peace and Security Act goes some way to helping identify how the US government can help with the imp implementation of 1325 and effect positive change, increasing the volume of our voices. So what difference will women, especially women of color, forces make? Well, our immediate challenge, unfortunately, remains to help others see the value of our voices. We are still working on that. As I noted earlier, women of color, we're the majority. There are 193 member states of the United Nations. We are comprised most of them. As political movements around the world have made clear, the time has passed when the majority are content or resign to let the minority make decisions for us. It is now time to include an inclusion rider on the, that, is, that it should be placed on the life and death decision-making that attaches to defining national security. The NSS for 2017, as Ambassador Bonnie mentioned, focuses on physical border security, defending against weapons of mass destruction, protecting against jihadists, and transnational criminal organizations and protecting crit critical infrastructure. All are pretty clear and traditional issues. It requires that we maintain our military overmatch, like that phrase, overmatch, that we embrace our en energy dominance, modernize our nuclear forces, and maintain freedom of action in space. To be fair, it also talks about incentivizing reform in other nations, using technology to reduce traditional pollution, and recognizing the importance of environmental stewardship. 
but I'm guessing a thorough examination of these priorities this evening will result in some useful recasting. My years as leading the Strategic Planning Office of the State Department's Counterterrorism Bureau makes me a firm supporter of combating terrorism and radicalization at their roots. But I also question whether we are at our most effective now. For example, are American soldiers killing Africans in Africa, making our nation more secure? I question whether we have the right tools, focus, and understanding of radicalization drivers so that we can move from defensive to truly preemptive actions. My years of working to address cyber threats also lead me to question whether we have the right balance of internal and external focus there. What about food security? How might the issues of health crises, education standards, and the weaponizing of society impact a nation's security? 30 years ago, a narrow slice of humanity once decided America's national security strategy should include a focus on making people proud of their nation. We now understand it's imperative that we add voices that can provide wider views and perspectives previously ignored or unknown to help us get this right. The definition of national security deserves robust examination and input from an audience far wider than those who are currently defining it. We have everything to gain by doing so now. Thank you. Great, thank you for that uh, great introduction to our conversation. I think that also helped to set the stage. Uh, so now I'm going to turn it over to Christina Remines, who's going to uh, lead the discussion, the panel discussion. Um, all of the panelists are going to have some time to say a few words of introduction, and then we have some questions that uh, she's going to be um, asking everyone, and then we're going to turn it over to the audience. So, Christina? Yeah, thank you. What, um, what a really great um, keynote. I. Um, I just spent this past couple weeks in like meetings full of just like mediocre white men for, for a lack of a better term and, and just to come with here is 30 years of definition and the themes. Um, so um, it's so exciting to be in a room like this um, full of very exceptional um, people um, and I think we're going to have a great discussion. Um, I think we'll sort of the, the panelists on the farthest end and then work our way to the table here. But um, I'm going to ask uh, everyone first uh, what their definition of national security is and um, how their work fits in. So we'll start there. We'll start with the, um, and if you're not using it, turn it off. Sure. Hi. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for hosting us. And Ambassador Jenkins for getting us here and uh, making us part of this very important discussion. I work in security sector reform and essentially we work in five areas. We do security sector reform, borders, uh, we do um, CBE, CT, we also do defense institution building and academies of excellence. And so part of our work really is to help our partners uh, to build capacity. And what that entails is not just going to say Africa and telling them what to do and the American way to do it, but rather to allow them to lead and us lead from letting them lead up front and uh, 
us telling them, actually not telling them, <laughs> us allowing them to tell us uh, what it is that they need. And the reason why that's important is because this is an interconnected world. And the more we work together, the better it will become. If we see that there's some sort of instability, let's say in Mali, that can cause an effect in France. So we just, it's very interconnected and we need to be cognizant of those factors. The way that national security has traditionally been defined has always been by military might. In fact, I asked one of our project coordinators at work, I asked all of them, um, how do you define national security? And I asked them to ask their parents, how do they define national security? And it was really interesting response. And one of them said, well, my father said, military might, that's how we define national security. You know, America first. Uh, so <laughs> I know we all hear that rhetoric nowadays. Um, and yet with them, it gave me a promise that the youth is moving towards the right direction. What they said is that encompasses everything from Again, we've heard economic before, but more so environmental. Uh, you know, we saw what happened in Puerto Rico with this last uh, hurricane season. We, they also mentioned cyber, uh, but more inclusive of cryptocurrency. So things that we haven't necessarily thought of before, but it, they're becoming issues that we should all be cognizant of. And I think the narrower definition we have, the less prepared we will be to deal with some of the emerging threats that are diverse that we need to respond to. So I, I think that's uh, just setting the stage here and I look forward to continuing this discussion. Hello, um, my name is Joyce Williams. And Again, thank you all for being here and thanks uh, Ambassador Jenkins for um, the opportunity to be here to address this topic. So um, if we look at national security, um, my background is in international trade and immigration law. And the way I define it is really recently a case that I had worked on. Um, a woman from El Salvador who had sons um, who were trying to be, uh, her sons were being tempted and being courted by MS-13 um, in El Salvador. She happens to be here in the United States and she tried to work um, to get her children over here um, into the United States by filing um, family petitions for them. So eventually, the sons were able to come, um, ages 18 and 16. When the son came in Feathers County, Virginia, where I live, um, that's the same area that this family lived. And there's a lot of activities of some gang members there. So even though the connection of MS-13 is in El Salvador, they tried to connect with other members who were in that area and still went after the young boys. Mm -hmm. So the mother became a suspicious and tried to address that issue with the police. And what did the police do? They arrested one of the boys and tried and kept him and tried to get him to turn uh, over information. Mm -hmm. So with this, um, when he was released, 
the first thing the mother did was send the boys away to Texas. So, and then in Texas, the situation got one uh, worse. Eventually, one of the boys was murdered um, in Fairfax County in Virginia. So they, I came into the um, into contact with the mother, and the issue was how is how are we defining security in terms of we've had a lot of talks about border security, building walls, but the issue in the whole situation was the way the uh, police interacted with the woman. Um, she was trying to help in way that she was trying to protect her children, but at the same time, she was also trying to put law enforcement on alerts that these activities are going on. But they didn't have much of trust in her. One of the police officers unfortunately said, well, they say these things and then they ask you to sign a certification for a U visa. So in his mind, this woman was making this complaint because she wanted to gain some immigration benefits. And so the conversation shifted from the protection which should have happened to, well, I don't really trust you um, because you are of this background. So if we, um, as the ambassador said in her keynote, if we are serious um, about defining what national security is, then we have to pay attention not only what is going on in El Salvador, in somewhere in Africa, but also how the interconnectedness of those issues here at home, because the distances are there, the physical borders are there, the physical distances are there, but we are even much closer than we realize because of the family connectivity. Because I'm originally from Ghana. I speak to my family all the time in Ghana. Um, I talk to them, they know what's going on there, I know what's going on there. Um, I keep trends of what is um, going on. So if we are having a discussion or if I, sometimes if I have a case and I'm talking to the officer or a judge, I'm telling them that in this particular country, because of conversation with X, Y, and Z, so I know this is what the law says, or I know this is what your policy says, but this is the reality and this is the situation. But if we ignore those um, conversations and we say this is what we are about, whether it's America first, whether let's build borders or walls, whatever it is that we do, then we defeat the purpose of whatever plan or action that we take. So I'll stop here again. Thank you. Uh, well, shifting gears, I'm not a security expert. I'm a physician and a public health professional. But I think what you all raised, and first of all, I would really like to thank Ginger and um, Ambassador Bonnie, and also uh, thank you, Ambassador Gina Winstanley, for uh, you know giving good opening remarks. <laughs> it's a Middle East way to do first day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, not Middle Eastern. I'm not Middle Eastern. I'm not Middle Eastern. Okay, so what I, I just wanted to say that 
one thing I found as a physician, you know, with all the cuts in the current administration making the global health, those of us who have our boots in global health and trying to work are really facing challenges. Because if we cut this funding, we say like, but as I tell my students, we need passports and visas to travel, but not diseases. And Ebola, um, flu, and you know actually flu kills more people. And then you're seeing, for example, I'm just coming from the CSW, and it's like, I know some people are wearing masks. And then if you go somewhere, you see in a lot of, you know, like Taiwan and Hong Kong, they're wearing masks. Because national security, what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, just doesn't affect the U.S. It's a ripple effect. So this is a big concern. And I can tell you, during um, the uh, Ebola crisis, when we had a public health, uh, uh, um, annual public health meeting in uh, NOLA, uh, Bobby Jindal, who was the governor then, issued a warning saying any health professional who went in the past one month to uh, any to West African nations cannot come. And we were like, you didn't ask any health professional. So we had so many cancellations because we wanted to have people come and discuss and share best practices. But this was not possible. So to me, it's awful. I'm sorry, we have two politicians. I mean, you're diplomats, you're not politicians. I'm talking the truth. Yeah, yeah. So I take that back. <laughs> we cannot have them interfere in policies regarding health. Yes, but this was a big issue. And when I met Dean Birkins, uh, Ginger, uh, or, you know, the dean of uh, the Tulane School, I go, he says, which politicians, which politician listens to a health professional? They think their own things. Now, just shifting gears because I'm passionate about women's health. The same thing. What about security? We are denying care. We want to build a wall. We want to stop immigrants. So. What about these women and what about the children they have? So are you going to throw them out? I mean, I don't even want to bring up the DACA and the Dreamers. I don't want to go there. But I'm just saying this really affects us because of all the healthcare issues we have. And the other biggest challenge, let me tell you, I mean, correct me, both our ambassadors, if I am wrong. We have a stockpile of smallpox somewhere hidden in our country. What's going to happen if we have a terror attack, ladies and gentlemen? None of us, except some of us who've had the vaccine, are not protected. So you're talking about security. It's biological warfare. What happened in Japan? After that, those of you who've traveled to Hong Kong, Japan, anywhere in some parts of Asia, I love their subway stations because you have masks. You have all the things that you just have to break open the class. Here you don't know who's going to cough, who's going to puke on you in the subway. Pardon me. If we have polite conversation, we can't make a change. But what I'm trying to say is when we're talking security, it's just not building up an army. It's not our Air Force or defense. We need to build up our healthcare system, which is really crumbling. Yep. And as a physician, it's awful. Like you're fighting, you're fighting with the insurance companies. This is all security because if we have a healthy nation, if we protect ourselves and also extend our healthcare services to the people who come in, I mean, I don't give a damn if that person is undocumented or is born here. It's a disease, it's a patient, you treat the person. Mm -hmm. Because a disease is not going to attack you differently, not XYZ <laughs> differently. 
you know, so this, when we're talking about security, I think this is something we need to, and the other thing what we are training our physicians, our young students is that if you see something suspicious, like, you know, ask for a travel history, did you go somewhere? Because I just want to share this before I wrap up. And uh, uh, there was a, a couple of uh, years ago, there was this guy who went hiking to South America. He went to a cave. Now, all of you love to travel, like, including my daughter, who's gone to like 32 countries. She might make an appearance anytime now. So, <laughs> she, <laughs> so uh, uh, she's finishing the project. She texted me like, I'm on my way. I said, yeah, whenever, whatever. So what, I, so what I'm trying to say is this gentleman went hiking. So when you go hiking and go into a cave, he was punctured by Dracula's cousin, a bat. He came back. He developed a fever. He died. Nobody realized he got a very rare form of rabies, which we don't have in our country. Only when they did the autopsy, the brain, they call it Negri bodies. It's a characteristic for a different kind, like each species of the bat. So can you imagine the security issues? What about the people who handled him? You see, because what we call, what we call that is a contact tracing. So all this is a security issue, and we have the pods. That's point of distribution. So flu people go like, ah, I did the flu vaccine. I got sick. No, <laughs> at least it's protecting you a bit. So I think we really need to focus. Like yes, we are spending on military, but we are cutting away from health. Like mm -hmm. we are just, you know, cutting off the branch of the tree we are sitting on, and we think like, duh, we are going to be okay. Duh, we are going to fall. I mean, you know, and we don't know whom we come into contact with. Yeah, so that's a security issue, which I think as healthcare providers, we're trying to tell our students that, you know what, be careful. You just don't go traveling somewhere and, the, you know, like you go swimming somewhere. You, that's how all these are transmitted. SARS, last thing. It started in from Hong Kong, Canada, you see, if you pay, draw a graph, how it traveled. So that's what we need to like, just really, and we need, we can take a, a page or two from our um, Asian colleagues because they say when you're sick, you need to come here. We don't have any kind of screening except like, are you a terrorist? Because you have a name like a Khan or a Muhammad or something like, give me a break. Check out for diseases, yeah. which do more harm than one person just because you're profiling him or her because of their name. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to thank all the organizers for uh, gathering us here. And I also want to thank you because actually what you said is a great segue into uh, what I have to say. Uh, initially. I come at security from having spent a long time doing what I would describe as hardcore political military security and then transitioning to public health. And so where I work right now is the intersection of uh, public health and national security. And so uh, in defining national security, and I've been thinking about this a little bit, uh, there are a couple of uh, precepts, I would say that I have. Um, the first would be uh, people and their well-being are the resource to achieve national security, just generally. Um, 
And I, did, and I look at national security uh, from the standpoint of that being the, the freedom from coercion, and there's a reason why I kind of put it that way, uh, because there are a lot of uh, health issues that can affect the way a country might react and be perceived as coercion. Um, and uh, the last point I want to make, uh, and I'll speak to this further when we come back around, is if you can mitigate your security issues, obviously you enhance security and you, you also improve your vulnerability to national security threats. Thank you. Good evening. Um, again, thank you for having me. As um, Ambassador Jenkins mentioned, I'm a young ambassador with WCAP, so please feel free to come talk to me after this. Um, so what I would say is I am very much coming from the entry-level position. I have yet to actually break the intern ceiling. I have yet to actually <laughs> achieve entry-level, and I would say I have yet to build an expertise. I'm very much a generalist. You give me a project, I will give you what you need. Um, but what I'll say is this, as a young woman who is a woman of color in national security and who felt, even at the internship level, that I wasn't seeing the reflection of women of color in the space at both the entry, mid, and senior, I would say that we must broaden um, national security's definition. And just a little background, I graduated from Wesleyan University um, last May with a bachelor's in college letters and history. So just a little background, college letters is a very interdisciplinary major, um, very westernized. But my, my, the reason why I mentioned that is because of this. National security is an interdisciplinary field. In no way can we ever think that it is only defined by only foreign policy and military affairs. It really is the intersection of so many different topics. And that is why national security is, and I really always say this, is for everyone because it is a topic that marries every single angle and every single perspective because without having those different diverse angles and perspectives, we cannot create both a secure country, but also our interests abroad and our relationships abroad. And so I encourage, and I hope that everyone um, also agrees with me on this, I encourage everyone to consider that their field is a form of national security, because at the end of the day, you're contributing to both the security of our nation, but also, again, to our interests abroad. So thank you. Uh, yes, well, my name is Asha Casper, and I want to thank uh, Ginger and Ambassador Jenkins and everybody else for um, having me here. I'm so excited about today. Uh, I was part of the coordination for this event because I thought it was extremely needed, uh, not only because I think women lack the uh, being part of the diversity discussion, I mean, excuse me, national security dialogue, but I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? Uh, <laughs> it's the 21st century. We, we need a diverse cohort of professionals that represent the entire nation. Um, the way I view national security is uh, pretty much simple to me, internal and external threats that are impacting a sovereign state. Um, and of course, because I'm American, I look at the United States mainly um, and, and uh, everything else. <laughs> um, I feel like I wear two hats or three when it comes to how, um, how I um, contribute in this area. One, a WCAP board member. I love being part of the organization. Two, um, a professor at, uh, at Fordham University, where I think uh, when I look at security, is the quality of education, <laughs> uh, teaching students about national security, especially uh, about around this time where a lot of them are like, what is going on with our government? 
what is going on around the world and they're just extremely puzzled and and it's very um and they're very vulnerable because they just don't know and i feel uh great to be there to feed them the information the right information um you know i'm not saying i'm always right but i i feel like i'm credible to provide them uh, a, a good understanding of how national security works so education security is very important in this country um also too um um, my third hat is uh, military officer, so my views do not represent uh, the U.S. government, but um, I, I pretty much under, as a military officer, I look at the hard security piece um, and look at the evolution of warfare in three fronts, uh, especially as we're countering Russia when, look, when you look at it through the nuclear lens, cyber, as well as conventional warfare. Um, and what I, what I think is very important right now as we are dealing with our aligned system and our threats, we need to make sure that our military diplomacy is at place. Uh, and what I'm kind of getting tired of is seeing a whole bunch of men do it, where it uh, tends to be a little too masculine, um, aggressive. Uh, I've done a lot of military diplomacy uh, as a military officer, and I will tell you women are, are at times more effective, and I would love to see more women um, doing that, and I think we bring in a great um, opportunities, perspectives. Uh, we also help uh, incorporate gender-based programs, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of women to do that, and we're still underrepresented in the armed forces, uh, so that's pretty much what I have say with, with regards to this first question. Didn't I say this uh, conversation was going to be exceptional? Um, so I think uh, all our panelists have done a really good job of describing um, what gets lost when we have such a narrow definition of national security. And um, before we move to, to the next question, if I forgot to introduce myself, so I hope you'll indulge. But I, I think it will provide a good segue. Um, I am an organizer. At heart, I'm the field director um, at Women's Action for New Directions. We were sort of founded in the Cold War as Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament. We we're hoping to broaden out into other spaces, but we're very squarely back um, for understandable reasons. Um, and I and I would say that I started my career out organizing on domestic feminist issues, racial justice issues, and um, I'll be honest and I'll confess that I used to not understand how these um, issues affected me. And um, that is a huge challenge that I see now as an organizer. And so um, my next question for the panel is, um, what can we do as individuals, as members of organizations, as professionals at every level, um, what can we do to broaden that, that definition, help people connect with it? Um, because I think there's a lot of people um, in this country who care a great deal about um, human, dignity, human dignity, rights, and justice. And I think, especially now, um, from the domestic perspective, we have a hard time seeing above the challenges that affect us personally, because I think, especially for this room, those challenges are very great right now. So how can we help draw those connections? What, what can we do? Um, I think is just the short version of that question. So we'll go back to the opposite end of the table. Hi, great, thanks again. 
I think one of the things, I mean, we're starting to do that just here, right? We're at the table and we're these, discussing these very pressing issues. Um, I think just getting on the table is one of the starting points, but I think especially we need to think about gender just beyond just females. I think we need to think about gender in terms of males as well, because I've been in organizations where the pendulum swings the other way and then all of a sudden you have a full room of women and you don't have the other one and I think you need to support each other and it needs to be a combined effort. Um, so thinking about it in that way helps. Another thing is to look beyond yourself and make the other person see what you're facing. What do I mean by that? Um, I, I think sometimes as women, we get in the table and we say, okay, there's women present, but we don't see that women of color have a different set of experiences, that we are disproportionately affected. And I, I think that women, you know, a lot of women refuse to see that and they don't invite more women like us at the table. They just say, oh, now we have, Harvard say, now we have 50% women <laughs> participation. But what what is that makeup of? You know, how, how many different colors are there? And, and how rich of uh, perspective will they bring if we bring women of different color there? One of the things from our end as well, I think that's important, that we can't pinpoint and we can't you know, wag our fingers at the other end because then they'll stop listening to us. So it's important for it to be a productive conversation, a welcoming conversation, and a conversation that allows us to see the other, not just this other, but also as a partner, a confidant in this uh, road that we're taking together. So I, I think it, it, it's uh, multifaceted. You know, we need to start by just being at the table, then when we get people at the table, making sure they're seeing our view, but then also welcoming them in a partnership so that we can do it together. That's the only way that's really going to happen. I think um, for me, um, being in the legal field, and when I was in law school, um, I had one professor who was from St. Vincent's and the Grenadines, so and she kind of started just conversations with me saying that, you know, there's not a lot of um, minorities general in law or who does well in law. And um, there are lots of areas that are excluded um, in terms of having minority presence. And I said, well, I'm interested in international trade. And so she said, yeah, those are one of the areas where um, there's not a whole lot of minorities um, there. So I asked her, so how do I um, get into international trade? And she did really help me a lot in, um, in trying to map out what my career is going to be. And after a couple of years of having that experience, I just decided to start uh, my own law practice. And part of that is also to have di um, that diversity. And I was fortunate to be part of the leadership, um, diversity leadership. Um, from the American Bar Association section of international law. And the conversations we had was, um, what is diversity to begin with? It's not just the color um, of people just having the men and women as um, my core panelists just said, but it's also the background and the experiences that people come from. Um, it really matters a lot. So if we have even, let's say five or 10 women and we all went to, let's say, an Ivy League. We all have um, 
two we all come from two parents home we all come from um maybe middle income family home our thinking is almost the same in one way or the other so there's not a whole lot of um diversity there so how about the other person who is not coming from that background how do we get them to also be seated at the table and to actually listen to the contribution that they bring to the table um, part of the thing that I do uh, in my law firm, and I'm really learning a lot about leadership because I'm quite um, young to be leading other people, um, and I have people who are older than I am in my law firm, and every time we have conversations and the idea is that, you know, whether you are an employment law or whatever it is that you do, don't just look at that area, but look at how it connects with other things and expand that knowledge. And I really do encourage uh, people that I come um, into contact with. As I mentioned before, I'm from Ghana, um, so there's a lot of Ghanaian community in the Washington DC area. And I always talk with them because somebody will approach me like, well, I don't want to become a nurse. That's one thing that Ghanaians are famous for. In the US. <laughs> uh, every parent wants their child to become a nurse because it's you find a job and then you can pay those student loans and you're not still eating their food um, after college. <laughs> so, but I hear a lot of them, especially the girls say, I don't want to become a nurse, but how do I become something else? And still make an income and it's real issues. So I talk to them and of course you can say something happened to you so it will happen to everybody. But I find ways to encourage those um, young women to just really go out and do whatever they are passionate about and just not think so much about, am I going to make an income or not make an income? So I think that um, all of us here, just even being in this room, it's sort of a privilege and we can use that and expand it further um, next time, whether it's in our offices, whether it's after this, to really get to know somebody and try to have a real relationship beyond just Let's exchange business cards and then we never hear from you again. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, I think the way I look at it, first of all, if you're looking at, you know, there's so much of an implosion and explosion of social media. So instead of finding out, is like Jennifer Aniston divorced or like who is she? <laughs> I really don't think we all care about. It's like we need to use that, and that's what we've been doing, like using apps, like to track, you know, the GPS. One of the first things which was done was to track malaria, like healthcare workers going into different parts to say that this is the house we visited, and so marking it. So these are the kind of things when you're like really making, I would say, a, a globalized village, you know, or having like classrooms without borders. Uh, one of the things I really find fascinating is like how with the use of technology I had so many students who were deployed in the army and they could graduate because we could communicate with them using you know Skype now they zoom in but you know tomorrow they'll be booming or whatever <laughs> what I'm trying to say is and WhatsApp one of the things we are doing is using WhatsApp again they're not paying me to talk about it party, so I full disclosure uh, I like, but this is a great way of exchanging information this is what we are doing and the other thing is there's a push for us from the American Medical Women's Association we are looking at gender specific medicine 
because there's no one size shoe fits all. Like as we grow older, we have different needs. And again, as women of color, our healthcare needs are different from other people. So, because even the way we metabolize certain drugs is different. But again, there's not too many studies. And, you know, you get the same crap that, oh, yeah, women, they're going to get pregnant. But, hey, unless you're talking about IVF, somebody at 50 is not going to get pregnant. So do some studies, get some data out there. So I think we need to really be push for it, as you were talking, as it, and it needs to spill over. And just not like, you know, that's why you have this whole thing, this concept of gender-specific medicine. And I would like to say that we need to also have ethnic-specific medicine <laughs> because everybody has different needs. So that's what. And then you know what? Like, talk to somebody. Like, you know, I mean, I guess even if I've woken up in my sleep, I'll be talking. But <laughs> what I'm trying to say, it's so important to talk and get the conversation going. And thanks for doing that, guys, here. <laughs> I just wanted to say briefly, I mean, I certainly have 30 years of looking at national security from a very hard perspective. Um, and as a woman and a minority in every room, every time for 30 years, making sure that I had to go on a few days and the confidence to talk the hard stuff. And you, Madam Military, know that very well. Um, but also trying to introduce the other stuff that I know, that we know needs to be included. Now that I'm no longer with the State Department and can speak truth all the time, I was telling you that's yeah. it's just wow. <laughs> but I am now spending a great deal of my time on mentorship. Um, there's several young ladies in here I want to talk to. Um, but because the reality is, as women, as minorities, we often have that insecure feeling, regardless of the bona fides that we walk into the room with, we've got this thing up here that eats at our self-confidence and our ability to speak our truth, knowing that we have every right to be at this table and to own it. So I do a lot of talking to young women and minorities to re-emphasize that speak up. I didn't start from some amazing, vaunted place. I have a very interesting tale of how I got where I am, and it wasn't through a lot of wealth and the right connections. It's entirely possible. All of us are valid. Speak up. And so it's important that we who are in a place to do that, pay that forward, make sure other people know that. When I was heading up the consulate in Jeddah, at one point, every section in my consulate was headed by a woman or a minority. And I know that happened because they saw me at the top and recognized that there was a place for them. We can't always be at the top, but we can make sure people know there is a place. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Sharon Jackson. Uh, but to answer your question, uh, I found, and this is more about having worked than anything else, that the best way to try to uh, get people to understand a different position is to actually try to get into their head and then make your case within the context of, well, this is how this is going to affect you. And if I could just uh, put out a, an example of that, uh, the opioid crisis, something that I've been writing about lately. 
Um, you know, we think the opioid crisis, well, it's affecting people in West Virginia or whatever. But what people don't understand is that while they're directly affected, there are a lot of indirect effects out there. Um, you know, just in terms of the people that are such victims of the opioid crisis. Well, you say, that's not me. Well, that may not be you, but because the government has to address that as a problem, there's less money for health care in other areas. Um, if, you, um, if you look at uh, how the opioid crisis is damaging communities, uh, you've probably seen the stories about how um, you know, uh, parents that are affected by the opioid crisis go off and they might leave their children for days and days and days or they might have their children with them when these awful things are going on. Well, that affects you because obviously the children then have issues that they need to deal with from having seen that and that requires social services, again, resources to address uh, making the life, making the children's lives better and mitigating what they've seen. So that addresses you because then there's less available for other things. And also, if the child doesn't get the care that they need, they're not going to be productive members of society as adults. Uh, the third, uh, you know, one other thing is that you look at the opioid crisis. Well, you know, if you're addicted to opioid, you're probably not going to be go out be able to go out and go to a nine-to-five job every day. <laughs> well, that affects you because uh, that affects the larger economy. If you remove uh, the number of people that are affected by opioids out of the labor force, that affects what the economy can do. And while I was on my way up here, I uh, looked up a couple of statistics. Uh, the first is that 65,000 people died from drug abuse last year. 42,000 of those was for specifically from opioid abuse. That is a 28% increase from 2015 to 2016. The problem is getting worse. I mean, you know, you hear people talking about, oh, well, we need to get people back to work and make the economy strong. Well, if you don't have a labor force, you know, what are you going to work with? Because at the end, you're going to need people. Um, and the last thing is uh, that I wanted to mention in that context is that, you know, the opioid addiction, I understand it's an illness, but that it's not treated that way. It is treated as criminal activity. And if you have those kinds of numbers, I mean, the 65,000 people that I mentioned earlier, those are the people that died. That's not the number of people that's affected. The number of people that are affected is much, much larger than that. And, you know, okay, well, uh, you're going to arrest them all and put them all in jails. That's not a practical solution for a lot of reasons, uh, looking at the societal impacts and then going back to what I find people can appreciate, the economic impacts and the labor force impacts. say that there's a two-part answer to this. The first is amplification. Um, I think the one thing that 
you need to remember is that putting your voice forward is incredibly easy these days. Create a blog, get on social media, that's for one. And also, again, find a network in which they can help amplify you. Um, and I think the second part, which sounds strange coming from me, especially, again, as somebody's entry level, is building the next generation. And the reason why I bring up building the next generation is that right now we are facing a time in which an administration is not interested or not prioritizing diversity. So what we must do is we must look to how we can create the next generation to assume the roles in government and to become leaders themselves. And so in order to do that in any way is through sponsorship, through being an ally and through being a mentor. And I wrote about this a little bit with actually one of my co-writers, uh, Brittany Washington, who actually is also a young ambassador with WCAP as well. <laughs> Um, but what we talk about is that there's a very unique function in being a person in national security, which is that this field is incredibly opaque. There are no clear paths to getting to where you want to go. And so you rely on an incredible network of women and sometimes men who are going to help sponsor you and also teach you the institutional knowledge to succeed as well as help build your expertise. And so in doing so, you must also learn to challenge then in the workplace to make it more inclusive, to make it understand that why it must build and must create spaces for women to move up from the entry level into the mid-level and also into senior level. And so, again, this is in two spaces. It's both a challenge to ourselves to be able to amplify our voices, especially in this digital age, but also, again, to help each other in ways by either handing down or, again, supporting each other. I just took my answer. <laughs> um, I totally agree. That was the first thing uh, as far as amplifying voices. but. As we're amplifying those voices, we're articulating all of the national security issues, ranging from soft to hard. Um, I do notice in an environment like Washington, D.C., uh, more women of color tend to be more on the development side. Then it's like 50-50 diplomacy, but then when you get over to defense, it's lacks considerably. So I want to definitely see where we're all even now going across. And then, you know, if you're a private citizen, you're articulating those those issues and you're to the point where you can challenge your male colleagues saying, hey, if you don't address this, this will eventually affect you. Um, I think that is the most important thing. Um, another thing, too, is informing your communities on how important national security is. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area, especially coming out of the 2016 president elections a lot of people just don't know uh, and this is very important because if you inform them and you talk to them about national security you're identifying a talent that wants to go into the national security field um, and yes so for instance I will tell you what's very scary to me right now you're starting to see the erosion of US democracy Okay, and it's slowly happening. And when you bring this up to the average American, um, not only this is a concern, this is actually a threat to our national security, many of them do not feel that way. They're very indifferent about it. So that's why people like us, uh, professionals in national security, we have to be able to articulate that to them. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. Uh, I just wanted to add to that. I mean, one of the one of the things that I've been challenged with in terms of this organization is is to increase uh, the women in, of color in the hard security area. Um, and um, my background is in weapons of mass destruction and disarmament. Um, and so um, I focus on nuclear nonproliferation, chemical and biological, and, and also programs to prevent um, WMD terrorism. And I can tell you um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this organization is because I spent so many, so many of my years in government being the only 
fluid of color, um, and sometimes I'm fluid um, most of the time. And so, um, you know, I, I, it, it's a challenge, and I, it's something that I'm thinking about in terms of how do we amplify the voices of women of color in all areas of peace and security, but also how do we get more interest in some of these hard security areas as well so that we can even the playing field a little bit. It is a challenge because even I got into this field kind of by accident. It wasn't like I went to school saying I wanted to do what was a mass destruction. I kind of fell into it. <laughs> so it's not like I can go and say this is the way to do it because I didn't do it that I didn't do it in any prescriptive way. Um, but, um, you know, I think having women of color in the whole spectrum um, because all of these issues are, are important um, is something that I think we want to look at and make sure that in, in um, that we do have women of color in the peace, security, and the conflict, um, and as, as they are broadly defined. Thanks. Um, so um, this will be the last question before we open it up to audience questions. So start thinking of your questions now. Um, and I just wanted to bring it, you know, down a little bit um, to sort of the personal level. Um, and I wanted uh, to ask folks, um, like as women of color, um, to talk about their experiences um, in this field. I think it's particularly important, um, not only in light of, um, you know, UN Security Council Resolution 1325 and the Women, Peace and Security Act that was recently um, signed, but also um, looking around what's happening in, in sort of the larger society. Um, the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, um, talking not just about um, uh, sexual assault and harassment in the workplace, but just some of, it, it's hard to navigate. And I think what's interesting is that um, we have on this panel a, a whole range of um, women at, at different stages of their career, but I, I'm still hearing some of the same things, the imposter syndrome, the, you know, not really seeing people in leadership, but when you do, you're, you feel like there's space open for you. Um, I think I um, learned why this panel is so exceptional, because they had to be, in a way. Um, and I think that also opens up questions about, um, you're, you sort of have to play a little bit of a like respectability politics kind of game. And that can be extremely difficult to navigate. So how are you navigating? How can you share and how, you know, so we can amplify these things for those of us um, who aren't in this room right now. So all the way back there. Yeah. I think it's a challenge. I, I still confront that every single day. Um, you know, when I was younger, I worked at the Pentagon and I not only was I the only female in the room, I was the colored female in the room. So, you know, in in addition to that, I look younger, so to command respect was difficult. Um, I was often asked to go get coffee to yeah. go get. <laughs> you know, I, I think all of us can relate to that, um, unfortunately, and not that that's beneath me, but you know someone else wouldn't have been asked to do that. Um, I, I think it's very important what you guys mentioned about mentorship because there's been so many instances where I've seen that people get 
we need to challenge women because people, women will say, this person looks like me, therefore I am going to take her under my wing. Well, guess what? Someone like me or like most people in this room do not look like you. So you're promoting the same type. You're doing exactly what we're holding the men responsible for. You're doing the exact same thing. And that's why I would encourage people that if you're an organization that allows, that it's a learning organization that allows you to grow, to make sure that you're promoting women who look different from the way you do. Because it, it's critical importance and that you're making a pipeline for them to move up in the organization. And if you're not standing up for them, if you're not providing a voice, then you're you're part of the problem, right? You're, you're not allowing this to happen. I think, on the flip side, I've also had instances where I have spoken up and there was, you know, there, there, <laughs> instead you would hope that the opposite would happen, that you would be supported, but in fact, it, the total opposite happened that you, um, that I was viewed negatively because of that. Um, and I think it took me a while Sorry, because, because, of what? because I spoke up. Yeah. And by whom? Uh, leadership. When I was younger, so <laughs> um, not that that's an excuse. Um, and so it, it took me a long time to rebound from that, I think. And to this day, I think, I, you know, it's still, it, it still <laughs> uh, tinted me a little bit. Um, but I think one of the things is just not to give up in the face of all that. That no matter what, how many people try to break you down, it does make you stronger. And sometimes necessity is the mother of all invention. One of the reasons why, you know, I started Equanimity, and it's in a very nascent stage, to be frank, is because I couldn't find a job. You know, it, people couldn't see my trajectory. Not only do I look differently, but I went everything from working in microfinance to then working at the UN to working at the Pentagon, State Department, and then Morgan Stanley, and then went into tech, and then, but there was no clear path. Who are you? We can't put you in a you know senior associate role. We can't put you here because you haven't done X amount of years. And so you know, I, I want to thank Mackenzie for <laughs> turning me down so many times because <laughs> it made me a little more creative. Uh, so yeah, you, the thing is, there's no clear answer. Um, the same way that my road has been very winding, a very winding path, I, I think that's what um, we should let people know that because I think people see some sort of success, like you started from the bottom, now you're here, <laughs> um, but they don't see all the struggle in between. Um, yeah. And it's important to remind women of that because if not, it can be so easy to give up in the face of adversity. So to me, when I was about six years old, um, my family are Catholic, and they had this youth masses that you can go, and the children did the reading, and I wanted to be one of the readers. So I practiced and practiced and practiced, and then I went um, to try out, and I read very well, but at the end, um, the Catkiss told me, oh, you are too short. As you can see, <laughs> as an adult, I'm 5'1". So it's like, well, you're too short, so you can't reach the lectern. So sorry, maybe try again next year. But my parents are short. So in my mind, even at that time, I'm thinking, how tall am I going to get next year? <laughs> so I, 
I was just standing there and she was picking people. I was like, I don't know. I felt really some weird way. And then there was a stool there. Uh, I saw a stool. So I picked a stool and then put it behind the lectern and I stood on it and I could reach the top of it. So I asked, I told her, look, I can uh, reach. And she's like, wait, how? And I was like, well, I'm standing on a stool. So we can do that when it's time for me to read instead of not picking me because you're not saying I'm bad. You are only saying that my height, I've solved that. So, so she said, okay, fine, we will um, pick you. So I started um, reading. But so I went home and I told my parents and they were like, well, um, you got what you wanted. And that really stuck with me. Um, it's been with me throughout my life in any decision that I make, that there is always a solution to whatever problem. Sometimes it's not as easy as finding a stool and standing on it, but there is always a way to find. And when I wanted to do international trade and when I was in law school and my professor said, well, that's one of the difficult um, way, areas to get in, not a lot of people like yourself gets in. So she told me about a moot court and I said, well, let's enter the moot court. And she said, well, you don't have a team. So I just went around school and just asked everybody who was interested if they will come and join. So we had uh, practice and then we qualified and was in Hong Kong for the moot. So right after, um, we barely had time to prepare, but sleepless nights and then we went. So the person who um, was one of the judges was the director for UN Trade Commission. They had established a new office in South Korea. So after that, he said, oh, you were very good um, with your oral presentation. And so he started having a conversation with me and I asked him, so what do you do? And he explained to me and I said, and said oh, what are you going to do in the summer? And I said, well, um, when I get back to the US, I have to start looking for my internship. And he said, oh, maybe you can look us up um, and apply for an internship to Vienna. And I said, what if I want to come to South Korea? Because I know Vienna, um, it's busy, it's their headquarters, there are so many people there. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I might not really get real work. And I want to get the real experience because that's what I need. So I said, what if I come to your new office? And he said, we don't even have the office set up. We've just been here for three months. I said, I don't care. And he said, well, you don't speak any Korean. I was like, you don't speak. and they had so much work um, to do. So basically all the time, whatever it is that they need, and then I'll ask, well, can we do this? Can we do that? How about we do this inside? So all the time, I wasn't a staff member, but I was in all the staff meetings, and whatever was on my mind, I just said it. I mean, it was the worst that can happen. <laughs> um, somebody can just say no. So that's really involved uh, my approach. Um, of course, there are uh, times that I have uh, gotten a lot of pushback also from people um, saying, I remember um, last year I was in an African country. We we're talking about uh, supply chain security. And before I arrived, we were communicating uh, via email. My name is Joyce Williams. 
So when I got to the airport and the person met me and he was like, you are Joyce Williams? I said, yes. And he said, oh. I said, oh, why was the problem? And he said, I actually thought you were a white old woman based on your, the way you communicate in the email and your name. So I never expected that. So I was like, well, sorry. So I said, oh, sorry to disappoint, but I'm here. <laughs> and, you know, and we went on. Um, I've been to places where in court where judges have said, oh, where's your attorney? And I'm like, I am the attorney. Mm -hmm. And it's happened more than once. I'm like, I was here last week. You said the same thing, you know. Call <laughs> <laughs> um, out um, a little bit on that. So um, it's really hard um, going as a woman um, or as a woman of color with the different variation. Um, I remember in interviewing for law firms and people were like, well, you're not um, skinny enough. Some of uh, oh, my colleagues in law firms would oh. just be saying, you know, well, this particular law firm looks for this type oh, of no. body type or this individual or other things like that. And all those conversations are discouraging as to why you want to go into a certain profession. But those are things also that we have to deal with and change um, those narratives. So if you are interviewing at somewhere and the line of questioning seems a little odd or inappropriate, I say, say what you need to say. After all, they might not give you the job anyway, but then you have made your peace with them and then you walk away knowing that you have, you have um, planted some kind of seed in their mind for them to really think about the conversation they are having with you. So I don't shy away from opportunities to just really get people, nudge people to be aware mm -hmm. that, you know, this is not quite okay. This is not all right. And I find ways to do it because you can always just be too brash. Um, so um, I just had a conversation with someone and the person, it was a teleconference and the person sent me a text laughing at my vocabulary because she's like, really? That's the word you are using because if it was something attendance and the people were late and others and so I said, well, the attendance was quite poor. It's just like Joyce really quite poor. But she got what I was trying to say that, you know what, next time be better, show up. Um, but so I think that um, personally just really having a, um, experience in my childhood that really worked out and stuck with me and just also having um, quite a number of women around me that are really strong in their profession and I see how they go about day to day so it helps um, in saying well she's doing that and she's still okay so why not um, I will do that as well or find ways to do that um, and Having confidence also helps, and not confidence in just dressing nice or um, other things, but really also being prepared on the subject matter. Mm -hmm. Because when you apply for a job or when you want to speak on a panel and you don't bring any depth, then people are looking at you. Oh, she's on it just because she's a woman, you know. Yeah. But when yeah. you bring that depth and when you um, speak 
from a place of knowledge and expertise, mm -hmm. then nobody can undermine you. You have the knowledge. You are speaking yes. the facts. So whether you are a woman, black, short, whatever it is, you are saying what needs to be said. And so people will listen. So. Yeah, so I wanted to share, uh, you know, something like when I was a Oh, sorry. Thank you. I guess it's like the end of the day after Cedar, like I'm fading out. <laughs> so what I wanted to say is I remember this very clearly, uh, you know, like you talked about your childhood. So um, like I was always like, I guess I would just speak my mind. And now I guess in my 50s, I don't speak my mind so much. Like I kind of do it, but kind of twisted, you know, but when you're younger, it's a little harder. So I remember, like, I was, I must have been, like, eight or ten, and there were these bunch of kids, uh, like, when growing up in India, they were ill-treating a dog, and they were, like, older to me, and so I went up and I said, like, I started, they were stoning the dog, so I picked up a stone and hit the guy, because, like, why did you hit me? It hurt. I said, because you hit the dog. I hit you. So what I'm trying to say, you know, I guess this kind of, like, started, off and the other thing I, I which really it changed my uh, kind of going into the human rights aspect is I remember like okay when I was a medical student like the same thing you said like oh she taught in medical school in the subject of medicine I go like yeah I work so I talk it's like no women are supposed to talk only in OB and gynec not in medicine like hey you guys didn't do better I did better then you simple, you know, and that's what it's the bottom line. It's as you bring it to the table again without sounding brash, but we have to make a stand and never put ourselves down. You were talking about dress, yeah, like this is the thing. Why should everybody be an airbrushed model or like you know, wear Ivanka Trump clothing or something yeah, like yeah. that? Like, who really cares? I mean, we have to be comfortable in our own skin. I think that's the most important thing, I think, which. And the other thing is, okay, when I was like, my papers were being put up for a professorship, it was interesting. My boss, who was white, said that, oh, maybe, um, I kept asking her, like, I have to put up my papers. Like, yeah, 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 we'll do it. And then she goes, like, before the meeting, like, two days before, there's your file. I said, you never told me. And I have all the emails documented. Because she wanted to promote by calling, put her papers up first. Okay, well, finally, I got my associate professor, and guess what? Because what goes around comes around. I became professor much before my colleague, and my colleague, her, her professorship has not gone through. So what I'm trying to say is I was like, okay, I was fuming, but I was, you know, I was being insincere and, like, apologies. She's like, oh, whatever, Annette, whatever you want me to do. But th that's the other thing. You know, you, you, you sometimes you feel disappointment, but I'm just talking to the younger people. But you will get through it. I mean, you might think like, she's sitting here, but hey, we are all going through different challenges. Yeah. We don't bring it to the table, but we go through it. And the other thing I found is like, people think like, okay, you're an MD. So yeah, like I'm colored, but I'm not brain dead. <laughs> <laughs> I put in the same amount of work as somebody else did. So it's not that you want to wear the color of your skin as an excuse or something, but sometimes you have to work so much harder. It's not only gender. If you're a colored woman, you have to work much more. That is something which is there. It's unwritten. It's there even now. I don't care. We say, oh, yeah, we are sending, you know, we are twittering, we are tweeting, we have robots, and Amazon is going to deliver stuff remotely. 
even though he's eating an iguana, who cares? <laughs> that made news. But what, so that's the other thing I find that we really have to. And the last thing I wanted to say, it was interesting when I was uh, working on my book, Women's Health and Global uh, Human Rights. And, you know, I mean, I'm not uh, selling it. Uh, the reason it was so interesting, and we donated the proceeds to Mother Teresa's foundation, but it was very interesting mm -hmm. because what happened is I was looking for authors. And if any of you have heard of Fred Soy, he's from Ghana. He's, uh, you know, and so I, I met Fred and I went up to him and I said, Dr. Soy, I need you to write about what the challenges African women are facing. So he looked at me and said, you're from New York, you can get anybody to write it. I said, sir, I don't want a white guy sitting at a computer typing what? He said, that's it. And so he gave me a chapter. He was like in his 70s. And the same thing with Alan Rosenfield. Like he was dying with, um, you know, uh, he had uh, Lou Gehrig's. And I said, but Dr. Rosenfield, you've done so much. So I really appreciated that he wrote the chapter because I said, we need to know because he was the person who really talked about making sure women had the contraception and, uh, you know, all of yeah. the cesarean sections because he brought back, like, where is the M in maternal health? Where is the M in mother and child health? Because everybody was focusing on the children in the late 80s and the 90s and kind of threw the moms out of the window. Like, you can't get a child without a mom. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the reason I'm trying to say is, so I think these kind of people, so... I think what I would leave a message with is, it's persistence, persistence, <laughs> and perseverance. That's it. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask the rest of the panelists to be brief so that uh, we have some chance for the audience to ask, ask some questions. Very briefly, I would have said something entirely different uh, a week ago with this question, but just last Wednesday I was sexually harassed. Wow. And I have to tell you all, ladies and gentlemen who are here, um, I was one of the national security professionals who signed the Me Too NetSec letter. I, CBS interviewed me on the topic, a lot of articles in different journals. And this happened last Wednesday. So my piece of advice is to be prepared. Because I, I turned 60 this year, and I thought I'd aged out of that crap. So I would have reacted differently at the time if I had been prepared and on the lookout for. So remain on the lookout. Um, just very briefly, uh, two things I would say, uh, and this goes back to uh, my generation, which I share with uh, with Gina. Uh, you know, you have to be twice as good to get half, half as far, yeah. and you know, just be just understand that and pull through. And the other thing is to be to understand that people are watching you, and just because other people do things that might be off-putting, might be uh, might be forgiven. Be aware that you know it may not happen for you. So just again to go with Gina's message: be prepared and understand that's what you're facing. Um, I'll just say something very brief, which is um, you know just. Just be committed to your passion. Um, and if you if you have if you're passionate about something, 
you know, don't let um, don't let circumstances turn you away from it. Um, you just stick with your passion, believe in yourself, believe in your own abilities. Um, if something sounds weird that somebody's telling you that you can't do, just you just realize there's a reason for that, um, and just um, you know, just stay true to yourself. So. Um, so I'll just say this, uh, the struggle is very real. <laughs> um, and the reason why I say that is I work seven days a week. I work three days at a coffee shop and four days unpaid. And the reason why I mentioned this is because I was told before I started this that that would hold me back. And in many ways I do wonder some days if me not being in my current organization five days a week does hold me back. Um, and early on it was a very hard transition moving into that kind of schedule. I work at a coffee shop that I have to stand 10 hours on my feet. And so I did 30 hours, I remember, once a week. And I came to the office, and I got a call from a woman, and I just I could not answer the question. And I ended up having to put down the phone and go into the bathroom and cry. And I cried really loudly. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that I have had so many moments where I have wanted to walk away, where I've wanted to go home to Boston and just say, I'm done. And there are two ways that I have been able to sort of persuade myself over and over again, that it's worth seeing. And number one, it is my passion. I love this with all my heart. But number two is that <laughs> I've had incredible people who have always, somehow always managed to make me walk away from that ledge. Whether it is my friends, whether it is my mentors, whether it's my allies, I've always had people who have told me, you can do it, G. Just keep going. Have your patience and know that it will come. And so in doing so, I was able to have incredible moments where I was able to meet women who I must say, when I met some of the women that I've been able to meet, including the ambassador and the women at WCAPS, I was able to just look up and say, okay, it is possible. So just know that also as the older women in the room, you helped me so much walk away from that ledge because the challenges are really real, especially as a woman of color. Yes, the challenge is real, and I do agree. We have to stay persistent. I'm going to just tell you my testimony real quick. Uh, as a deployed soldier for 30 months, uh, I have, since that experience, I have not been the same. I've had white males and, and black males groom me to uh, speak with confidence. I probably uh, briefed them about 300 times when I was deployed, and coming back home, uh, I think they create a monster. You just can't shut me up about anything, right? Especially when it comes to national security, uh, military security. Um, but what I've noticed has been a challenge in my tr um, my transition is speaking to other people, and they judge me of uh, who I am first before they go, why are you interested in defense policy and militaries? Shouldn't you be interested in criminal law or uh, <laughs> civil rights or Black Lives Matter? You know, all that, right? No, nothing wrong with that. It's just they, that's what they expect. I said, well, I am interested in that, but my, my uh, expertise is, is national security, especially defense policy. Uh, so um, it has been very difficult because I get judged before I speak. Uh, when, then, when, when I actually talk, they go, oh, wow, I know you knew all that. So uh, there's only Always this judgment situation going on, but I would say stay persistent because there are people out there that get it and will work with you and groom you. And um, you know, and I, I just thank those men out there that have groomed me. Uh, I did sign a Me Too letter, and I will be honest with you, I was a little confused because I never experienced that, but I knew that I had to do it for other women that experienced that as well. So thank you. Um, excellent, and I just wanted to um, add to Jisoo, uh, please pay your interns if you can, um, or just do it. Um, uh, 
it's it's just really important and I think it's it's really it's particularly important because like that's how we're gonna stop individually being the only women of color in the room. And that's how we're gonna um, open it up to beyond people who have Ivy League degrees who have very valuable experience, but I think it's sort of the problem with tokenization. It's that I think in a way we also are perpetuating privilege. So please pay your interns. Um, so uh, now we're going to open it up. Thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.